Our next retreat is finally here. It's called Adventures in Energetics, and it's happening November 8th to the 14th, 2024 in Boquete, Panama. This seven-day, six-night retreat in the beautiful cloud forest of Panama is going to be a unique experience. This program is a not-for-beginners retreat. And what I mean by that is you will actually have to fill out an application before you will be accepted to be able to register for the program because we are going to be doing more advanced level energetics and I need to make sure that everybody who comes is actually ready for the work. We will be doing a Kundalini awakening. We will be doing group visioning process called a spiritual canoe. We will be doing daily presence practices and working on expanding our energy. We will be doing daily rituals. This process will be related to specifically the people who are there because in addition to filling out the questionnaire about what your experience is, you're also gonna ask for what it is that you'd like to learn. So part of the curriculum for this is set and part of it will be designed around the desires of the participants. I only have 20 beds available for this retreat, so it will fill up quickly. So this is the time to register. Do not wait. To find out more, go to kellysparta.com forward slash retreat. I look forward to seeing you there. Another blood red sunset and yet another moon face and still another hundred miles to my next resting place. Driving down the road, eyes on the horizon, within my car I'm all Feeling good and feeling strong Knowing that this path I'm on brings me to myself I'm driving Hey now all, I'm Joey C. Welcome back to another episode of Spirit Trippa. This is the show that helps and encourages you on your journey to unlock your magic mojo. With me as always is the spirit doctor, Kelly Sparta. Hey Kelly. Hey Joey. What's going on? We have a new guest today. We do. And so we're coming off. And again, don't like to tie things together too much. We want to keep it evergreen. But we're coming off talking about the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. And now you're now you're bringing us back. We're going to be talking about some cool stuff today that, that sort of ties into that apocalypse and transformation and death and all of that. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who do we got today? So we have Piotr Biankowski. Fiona's written a book called Where Airy Voices Lead. And so we're going to have a different conversation today than we usually have. It's not going to be a, an entirely spiritual bent. Okay. Um, we're going to be talking about the history and mythology of immortality as it exists throughout history, right? So um, if you ever wanted to be immortal or you ever wondered what it was like, this would be the time to listen in. <laughs> Because Yoder is going to talk to us about exactly how that works. And so, uh, but before we get into the conversation, I just want to invite you, Piotr, to, to tell us uh, a little bit about your background and how you came to write this book. What, what, what inspired you to write the book and, and uh, what you're looking to share with people as they read it? Well, thanks. First of all, thanks very much, Kelly and Joey, for having me on the show. It's a, it's a real privilege. Uh, so my background is uh, as an archaeologist and a museum curator. So I've, um, I've, I've directed museums. I've been a, a professor of archaeology. I've excavated and I continue to excavate sites uh, in the Middle East, especially um, Jordan. Um, a lot of archaeology, it seems to me, and a lot of museum curating 
is about curating immortality. You know, I, I curated a very large ancient Egyptian collection for about uh, 20 years uh, in a museum in, in England. And you can't curate an Egyptian collection without thinking about immortality. A lot of the stuff that's in museums around the world has come especially from the tombs of, uh, of, of ancient Egyptians. And that stuff was made specifically to guarantee immortality for, um, for the owner or for the dead owner. So it was in ancient Egypt, it was a belt and braces job to make sure that you got to the afterlife. You know, if, if method A didn't work, then method B would work. If method B didn't work, then method C would work. There were all sorts of um, um, fallbacks and fail-safes. So, I mean, in a sense, if you do archaeology, if you if you work in museums, especially with Egyptian uh, material, you you do end up thinking about uh, about immortality. And of course, a lot of the uh, ancient, the, the oldest myths, stories, and legends are all about immortality. So it's something I've been interested in um, um, for a long time. Uh, I was brought up as a as a Roman Catholic, um, with its sort of promise of eternal life in heaven. So I was thinking about immortality myself personally from a very very young age, um, and even as a young boy, I worried about what living forever and ever really would be like, and it actually scared me a bit because I simply could not imagine. And I used to literally get the shivers um, worrying about it. So. You know, this 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 book brings a lot of uh, things together, both personal fears from uh, early childhood, and also my my professional uh, my professional work. And in my professional work, I've come across a lot of different traditions and cultures, and that's one of the things I'm trying to bring out in this book. You know, this isn't just an exploration, for instance, of um, a Christian heaven, or you know, resurrection, or the immortal soul. There are different cultures who approach things in different ways. There are the Western traditions, there are Eastern traditions, there are the animist traditions, for instance, of Native Americans or Australian Aborigines or um, New Zealand Maori. And I've tried to weave those stories into the book um, as well. Well, that sounds fascinating. And I, I have to tell you, as you're sitting here talking about the Egyptians and archaeology, I'm going, that's why I wanted to be an archaeologist. Actually, I wanted to be a paleontologist when I was like in seventh grade. I was, and then I found out I didn't have the patience. <laughs> I was like, yes, you, you need a lot of uh, a lot of patience. I, I'm not a paleontologist, but I, I've managed paleontologists in museums. <laughs> and yeah, they're pretty patient people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I was at, I went out on my first dig and, and was like, oh, just carve it out. It'll be fine. <laughs> no, not good. <laughs> So, um, but no, the 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 cross cultural, uh, the cross tradition uh, concept of immortality is is fascinating to me. Um, how does it appear in the different types of traditions that you reference? The Western, the Eastern, the animist. I suppose you can look at it in terms of thinking about what are the different ways to achieve immortality. So there's resurrection. You die, and you are reborn. Um, then there's also the question, well, if you are reborn, where are you reborn? You know, what sort of heaven is this or what sort of hell is this? And there are, uh, even, in, even in cultures which have an understanding of resurrection, there are so many different depictions or understandings of heaven and hell. 
um, which I've, I've tried to uh, bring out at least uh, a little bit in the book. Um, then, of course, there's the idea of the immortal soul, that uh, whether that's combined with um, a resurrected physical body or whether it's something uh, separate and exactly what that soul is, you know, is it a pre-existing soul that's always existed um, or is it only created for each individual that continues to be um, immortal? It, again, in some sort of afterlife or some sort of um, uh, post-mortem existence. Uh, then there's the ideas of uh, reincarnation. So you, um, this is best known, of course, from the uh, Eastern religions, but it was very important in uh, ancient Greece in, and Rome as well. Uh, there's elements of it in Native American culture as well in America. Um, and again, it's, it's not a simple... Uh, it's not a simple description of what it, reincarnation is. It's not just, well, you, you die and you are reborn um, in another body. A lot of, especially the Eastern cultures, feel that reincarnation is simply a process. It's a, a process of um, spiritual learning. Um, and eventually, you cast adrift the ties of the physical body um, and, and, and unite either in the oneness of the universe or in some sort of uh, you know, nothingness, uh, which is the, the, the Buddhist nirvana, whereas other reincarnation traditions are simply interested in life after life after life. Then the animist traditions talk about different sort of transformations, whether into different humans or into animals, plants or spirits, um, you know, trees, parts of the environment. That's a very important part of, uh, for instance, Australian Aboriginal spirituality, mm -hmm. but it is a form of, uh, of immortality. Uh, then, of course, there's all the attempts to prolong our lives on this earth. In contemporary times, we still have that through um, the existence of cryonics institutes, where people can sign up, usually pay quite a lot of money, to have themselves deep frozen soon after death with the hope that sometime in the future, uh, technologies will be available that will either cure what killed them or will extend their lives indefinitely. In ancient times, exactly the same idea of trying to extend your life indefinitely happens with the very oldest story in the world, that of Gilgamesh in ancient uh, Mesopotamia. It's first known um, in its earliest form in the late third millennium BCE. But that is a story of a man who goes in search of uh, immortality, just like the people today um, in the cryonics institutes. So all those are ways of, should we call it, trying to achieve real immortality. So it's a way where you actually will somehow survive, whether on this earth or in some sort of um, afterlife. Or, or as maybe as part of your community, as part of uh, you know a plant, an animal, or, or, or part of the landscape. In a lot of cultures, though, the the discussions, the myths, the stories about immortality have been an acceptance that real immortality is in fact unachievable, um, and you have a sort of symbolic or proxy immortality, um, and that can be achieved through through fame through your your great deeds or through your your, your importance as a as a king or a warrior um, or of course through children and even in the story of Gilgamesh again going back to the very first story he tries to achieve real immortality on this earth but the moral 
of the story, the way it ends, is that he fails to achieve it. And what he learns is that the only immortality available to him will be through the fame of his achievements and through his progeny, the children. So I imagine that if you're talking immortality, that you also have to talk death because they're they're entwined, right? Completely. I mean, you know, it's a truism to say that uh, without death, there would be no um, immortality. But a lot of uh, philosophers, psychologists, and sociologists today believe that death actually is the, uh, uh, the, the fear of death or the existence of death is what creates culture. That without having that end point, there would be no point for us to do anything. And again, this has been explored, in fact, it's been explored for thousands of years uh, through stories and myths. Um, these days, philosophers and sociologists talk about it as a way of trying to explain culture to us um, and trying to explain that, in fact, it is all of culture is our bid to be immortal because we know we are going to die. Therefore, anything we do, and especially if it's something that's going to be an achievement that somehow outlives us. So whether it's whether it's having children or whether it's um, uh, being somebody very important who, you know, have statues put up to you or whether you write a book or, or whether it's something more mundane. You're, you know, you're a supporter of a, a football club that precedes you and you support it, but you know it will outlive you. It's something important that will um, um, outlive you. So there's a lot of discussion that uh, that that. The existence of death is what creates culture, and culture is actually a bid for immortality. Going back to my archaeological roots, I'm not sure I completely buy that argument, but it's one of these things that can be a, a great dinner time conversation because there's no <laughs> right answer. You know, why do we do the things we do? What what is culture? Um, I think there are so many different explanations for uh, what happens in cultures, that trying to find, you know, the one explanation of, oh, this is why we create culture. Um, I, I don't think that's necessarily the right way to go. But it's, you know, interesting to speculate. Well, and, you know, there's there's other mythologies that exist in the world that are referencing uh, immortality. I mean, the vampire mythology being the most obvious one, right? Um, and and if you think about it, you know, your your perspective on it as a child is really right on the money. It's like if you live forever, what's the point of worrying about doing anything in the in the now? Right. Because yeah. uh, you're guaranteed a million to a million billion tomorrows. And so, you know, at some point you just lose the flavor for life. Right. And, and a lot of the the stories over the centuries uh, about people who have been immortal. Now, obviously, this is fiction. So this is this is this sure. is speculation Absolutely. by the writers. Yeah. Um, you know, as far as I know, we have no case studies or, uh, or, but written by people who have lived forever and therefore giving us uh, their um, their experiences. Uh, but a lot of the stories are precisely about that: that people living for a long time, hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years, and what's that like, and what happens to them, and is it worthwhile? Um, and in a lot of them, going back to ancient Greek times right up to, you know, more or less the present day, uh, you know, possibly you can interweave the vampire stories into this. The conclusion is that, the, the, that it's actually a bit of a curse. It's certainly not a blessing to have this gift of immortality, that it could become uh, tedious, that, that you, you, you run out of things you do to, to do. And 
It's some of the stories. If the immortal person has an opportunity to end that immortality, for instance, you know, after X hundred years, they have to take another drink of the um, you know, particular special, special or elixir whatever, yeah. or whatever, exactly. Yeah. Almost always, you know, the punchline is they choose not to right. because they've had enough. Um, so, you know, in some ways we might think oh, it'll, be, it'll be nice to be immortal. But if you really think about well, what does that mean in practice, which a lot of people have explored, then, you know, it might not be, might not be so great after all. You might, you know, wish you, you hadn't uh, thought of it in the first place. Yeah, well, and, and today's day and age with the pandemic and the civil unrest and all of the stuff going on right now uh, highlights the fact that, you know, the, the, the questionable tomorrow, you know, whether or not there will be a tomorrow, it, 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 it brings everything else into stark relief, right? It does. And, 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 and another aspect um, of this is the relationship between immortality and youth or between immortality and aging. And again, this is one of the oldest stories. So certainly one of the great immortality stories dates back to the 7th century BCE in ancient Greece. Um, and it's that of uh, Tithonus. So he is immortal and he is loved by the goddess of the dawn. And she asks Zeus to make him immortal. But she forgot, forgets to ask Zeus for eternal youth. So while she stays young, and beautiful and fresh because she's an immortal goddess. He ages, and in the end, I mean, essentially, he gets dementia, and she locks him in a room, and she describes him as uh, babbling endlessly. And that that theme of uh, not having youth to go with immortality is something that's repeated um, over the um, over the centuries. And in some ways, I think it's it's very relevant now as we as we look at. Um, um, life expectancy increasing, mm-hmm. um, this whole, you know, well-being um, agenda where people are living longer, but they are still getting dementia. Right. Um, and, and in a sense, you know, what's happening is what happened to Tithonus in the ancient, in the ancient Greek story. So unless you have perfect health, unless you have that eternal youth, would it be worth having immortality? Right. Well, and, you know, a lot of the, 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 the drive to be immortal is about the fear of what happens when we die, right? Yes. And so, you know, especially within the Christian construct of, of heaven and hell, right? So um, what would you say about heaven and hell and how they play out uh, in, you know, knowing that heaven and hell are sort of, uh, you know, they're based in the Christian mythos and that across other religions and, and cultures it doesn't really translate exactly but you know having studied egyptian mythology you're you're familiar i'm yes. sure with anubis and the, the underworld and well we'll, yeah. we'll 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 talk about the the christian heaven and hell in a second but i mean first of all i will actually take issue with you that it doesn't necessarily translate to other religions and spiritualities okay. because actually it does and, okay and he, tell and, me how well, even obviously within the um, the monotheistic religions of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, you have actually very similar constructs of uh, heaven and hell, or at least right. you have a similar history of debates. 
Right. They all started yeah, the in the same three. place. They all yeah. had exactly the same discussions about about resurrection, about the immortal soul. Do they re? You know, do, does the body and the soul uh, unite? What sort of heaven um, is it? What sort of hell? You know, is this about judgment? Is it about punishment? Um, and very often they had very similar iconography um, to depict those uh, those things. But for instance, um, uh, other cultures borrowed. From either from them or, in fact, from from their Greek antecedents, because a lot of the uh, aspects of heaven and hell in uh, Christianity were, in fact, borrowed from ancient Greece. They're they're not peculiar to Christianity uh, and other cultures. For instance, the the Celts uh, borrowed uh, concepts of uh, of uh, of heaven and hell from. Um, uh, for, especially from uh, from Christianity and from ancient Greece, the the whole Celtic otherworld um, has a lot of similarities. Um, do it as well, and some of the, um, the Scandinavian religions also have uh, ideas of heaven uh, and hell, which may be slightly different from that in um, in Christianity. But there are still places where gods reside and where humans can aspire to go to, and also there are places of punishment where they can go if they haven't behaved in certain ways that are deemed good by the established religion. So. Um, I think there are a lot of, uh, whereas I agree with you that there are a lot of religions and spiritualities which don't have that concept of heaven and hell. Actually, there are there are others besides Christianity, historically, that do. But I mean, going back then to to, to your question about Christianity and and heaven and hell, um, there are so many different imaginings of what a Christian heaven would be like that. You know, people sometimes ask, would heaven be boring? You know, even, even Christians, would heaven be boring? And you, you can't answer the question because part of it is, well, what, what heaven are you talking about? Within the history of Christianity, you know, over the last 2,000 years, there have been so many depictions of heaven. I mean, is it, is it heavenly Jerusalem? Is it a garden paradise? Is it a place where angels sing praises to God for all eternity? Or is it a rather more modern one? The, uh, even a Christian one, where we meet our loved ones uh, and we remember everything about our past and their past? Or is it a more medieval place with, um, with judgment and punishment, where there are hierarchies of people who are good or less good, grades of reward, you know, where our bodies are perfected and purified? Um, or, you know, is it a mix of, uh, of these? And a lot of the a lot of the differences in those depictions of even a Christian heaven uh, come from changes in the cultures that were the, the Christian cultures over the ages that were were thinking about them. So um, some of it is to do with uh, different understandings of the cosmos. So the you know the original. Um, depiction of heaven was a very simplified one when the understanding of the cosmos was that there was an earth for humans. There was a heaven where gods resided and there was an underworld where the dead went. Once um, early astronomy realized that in fact the earth was spherical and there were other planetary bodies um, around, so from the say the 6th century BCE or so, the understanding of what heaven was and where it might be changed completely. All of a sudden, it wasn't somewhere at the ends of the earth or in the bowels of the earth. All of a sudden, heaven came to be somewhere uh, beyond the existing planetary bodies. Um, and 
a further um, uh, development of that argument within Christianity and within Judaism, within Islam, was that there wasn't just one heaven because there were several planetary bodies. These were possibly seen as different levels of heaven. So you've heard the you've heard the phrase to be in seventh heaven. You know the the the, the likely origin of that was that in early Christianity and Judaism and Islam, it was understood there were several heavens. The seventh heaven was where God resided. So that was the utmost pinnacle um, of achievement, the, uh, the utmost bliss to be able to face or see the face of God for all eternity. Having said that, um, there are other traditions which say that there actually, maybe there were three heavens or five heavens or um, in some uh, Jewish traditions, there are 955 heavens and not just seven. So, uh, so it, know, I remember it, it, the, a quote from Christ about there being as many houses in, in heaven as there are people, or I'm, I'm badly paraphrasing, but. Uh, yes. And actually the, the, the whole idea that there are houses or temples or palaces in, in heaven is again, you have to think about where did that come from? Um, and it's partly because in the earliest traditions, heaven was seen as the counterpart to the uh, the temple in Jerusalem, uh, um, it, especially in, um, uh, in, in Judaism. And therefore, um, the temple was the house of God on earth, and therefore heaven was depicted in the same way as oh, okay. the, the house of God. And so the, 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 the early descriptions of heaven very much parallel the um, temples in ancient Palestine look like, because that's what they were, that's what they regarded the house of God. Um, so there's a, there's a belief uh, that, that is running through uh, the spiritual community these days um, that uh, each person creates their own heaven or hell in the afterlife. Um, how is that supported or refuted in historic references? Well, in some ways, because you've got so many different descriptions of, uh, of heavens, and, and it has to be said of hell, you could say, well, maybe there's, um, there's, uh, there's something uh, in that. But I think as a historian, my problem with that is, is that there within particular periods, there are there are patterns of what what sort of heavens and hells you see, um, and if you delve into it, you can see where the ideas came from. Um, so, for instance, in medieval Christianity, and I've touched on this already, there was a lot of stress on on judgment and on purity. So, sex, for example, was a big hang up for medieval Christians. And so it was the, the sexually pure, the ascetics, who occupied the highest places in heaven, the highest grades um, of heaven. And if, if you weren't sexually pure, if, for, if you weren't a virgin, then you could never attain some of those um, highest places. And the utmost bliss was the, the so-called beatific vision to see the face of God for all eternity. For a medieval Christian, that was what you were striving for. Well, by, certainly by the 18th century, it was uh, a lot of uh, Christians were thinking, well, that actually doesn't sound terribly exciting to face, you know, hundreds, thousands, millions of years facing 
um, face, uh, looking at the face of God. And around that time, there was a lot of stress on the soul as the locus of personal identity and personal development. People started to be much more interested in things like psychology and philosophy and the individual and the, the importance of the individual as opposed to the group. And at that time, different pictures of heaven started coming through, which have continued to be um, um, very important um, um, today. So the idea that heaven is a place almost exactly like the life we live on earth today. And it's a place where you're reunited with your loved ones. You have family, you have friends, your pets are there. You have hobbies, you have a job, um, um, and you have a, a, a structure of life that is very similar now. And there's opportunity for personal development. So it's not just staring at the face of God and st a static experience. The, the 18th century and later heaven mirrored this idea that, that, that people wanted something more. It was about the individual. Um, and so you get this, this uh, heaven of personal relationships and personal development where things actually happen. It's a heaven of progress. So uh, a lot of the, the pictures of heaven you've had since the 18th century have been uh, much more individualized, much more personal. As you say, people create their own heaven. But that's a really fairly recent phenomenon. If you go back before the 18th century, and especially to medieval times, um, especially within Christianity, there was a pretty rigid understanding of what this was and what you had to do and what you would expect. So the one of the things I cover in my, my book, in the, in the chapter on heaven and hell, um, I look at it through the prism of journeys to heaven and hell. A lot of religions including and perhaps especially Christianity, had this tradition of journeys to hell, uh, to heaven and hell, which in some ways were a bit like modern near-death experiences. And so somebody goes on a journey to the afterlife and they come back and they tell everybody else what it is they have seen. But these were ways that the um, early and medieval um, religions uh, or Christianity try to explain how a Christian should behave, what their moral behavior should be like, that if they didn't do A, B, and C, then this is what they would expect. Uh, so it was a, a pretty uh, rigid uh, framework for what heaven was and for what you, uh, you would expect. And once a separate hell was invented, because sometimes in some of the early depictions of heaven, parts of your journey are actually what later became a separate hell. So you have the punishment, almost like a sort of purgatory, in some of the stages of heaven, which you can then get beyond. But afterwards, it became a separate place. And that it was, it was you know, pretty unpleasant. And a lot of the, uh, uh, in fact, virtually all of the medieval descriptions of hell um, enjoy putting in all the horrendous punishments that will happen to sinners. And they grade the sins. So there were particular punishments um, appropriate to particular sins. And what's quite interesting in the, um, in the more modern post 18th century depictions of the afterlife, there's much, much less stress on hell 
Um, there's much less stress on, on punishment than judgment. Um, although, you know, I've been looking at some statistics, and what's interesting is that um, many people today actually do believe in an eternal heaven, heaven and hell. So I've got some statistics here that 72% of U.S. adults apparently believe in heaven, but only 58% in hell. And those are of people of all affiliations. Those figures rise if you have a religious affiliation. I mean, an astonishing 82% of U.S. adults believe in heaven. U.S. adults with a religious affiliation believe in in, uh, in heaven. And, and I'm sure you're right that quite a lot of them will have this post-18th century view that this is something that's a you know, recreation of um, of life. It's something where you remember everything, you have your loved ones around you, and you can have uh, a fulfilled life. That is not the medieval view of a Christian heaven. So, so we just uh, did an episode around the apocalypse, and one of the uh, the things in Revel- is, uh, revelations and the judgment day and the dead rising. And that's, that's kind of an immortality thing, right? That's, that's... Completely. Yes. So um, can you sort of give some insight uh, from a historical perspective of the story of revelations and, and just to sort of tie the two episodes together here um, on, on how revelations work, because, you know, Joey asked me a question when we were done talking about the, the indicators and he's like, so what are you supposed to do if you're in the middle of the apocalypse? <laughs> and, and what, what, what is, what comes next? Right. And so, um, you know, from a, from an immortality perspective, from a, a historical perspective, uh, what does the post-apocalyptic world look like based on, uh, mythology and and across across not just Christian but but all cultural constructs there. That whole idea of uh, the, the 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 book of um, Revelation is uh, is built around so understanding of the end of the world and possible um, uh, resurrection. That was that was something that came out originally of uh, a change in Jewish thinking in around the third or second centuries. BCE. So, I mean, to take a historical perspective, up till that point, um, Jewish understanding of death and the afterlife was very similar to that in ancient Greece and in ancient Mesopotamia. And it went back to that simplified cosmos that I mentioned earlier, that there was an earth on which humans lived, that there was a heaven where God resided that was inaccessible to humans, and there was an underworld where it wasn't immortality, but it was some sort of bleak, continued existence. And the ancient Mesopotamians and the ancient Greeks, and actually the ancient Jews, the Jews of the Old Testament, they believed in actually much the same sort of underworld. In, in Hebrew, it's called Sheol. And it's, it's uh, in, um, in uh, the Greek translations of the Old Testament, that's the word that's translated as Hades. Um, which is the the uh, the, the Greek uh, underworld, but by the third and second centuries BC, the um, the Jews in Palestine were being persecuted by the um, by the ruling powers, who are the um, the successors of Alexander the Great, um, and the way historians sort of reconstruct what happened is that. 
it's at that point you get the original stimulus for having a heaven that you can actually go to as an individual, as a person in the afterlife, or maybe a hell um, if you've been somehow wicked, because there needed to be a system for afterlife rewards and punishments. The old cosmos, the cosmos of Hades and Sheol, was everybody went to the underworld, irrespective of achievement or non-achievement or good or bad behavior. Well, if you're a persecuted Jewish sect and you feel that you're God, you, you, you are the chosen people of God, how's that going to work? How come everybody, you and your persecutor, ends up in exactly the same place? And so it's exactly at that point when they're being persecuted that the idea of a separate place where you can go to if you've if you're the chosen people if you've been uh, uh, behaving in a particularly good good way uh, and that was developed later by christianity and into the um, uh, separate understandings of um, of heaven and hell so at first within judaism it was believed that it was only a particular group that would go to heaven everybody else would either go to to that old underworld or later on the idea of a, of a separate hell. But different Jewish thinkers over the centuries philosophized about this. Some of them thought it was for special Jewish groups. Others thought, no, everybody can go there. Similar debates have happened and continue to happen within Christianity and Islam. You know, who goes to heaven? Is it just your particular religion or can everybody go there? So the whole development of, the, of, of what revelation is about comes out of this ferment of, um, of, of new thinking in the third and second centuries BCE when the Jews were being persecuted and they tried to think of uh, that there must be something more than this. There must be some reward for all this persecution that we're having. Uh, so the idea of um, of an afterlife or of the heavenly Jerusalem. So it's a different it's a different form of heaven. It's the idea that heaven is actually on earth. Uh, it comes out of that thinking. Okay, so what we would expect post-apocalypse, according to the belief structures, <laughs> is that heaven appears on earth. According to the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation is only one of many apocalypses that were written. The, the Greek word apocalypse simply means revelation. Um, but it's uh, um, the, the the phrase apocalyptic literature is given to a whole host of uh, documents that were written around the third, second, and first centuries BCE, which dealt with these themes of the end of the world um, and um, judgment and punishment and whether people will be resurrected. The Book of Revelation, so the last the last book of the Christian New Testament, talks about the heavenly Jerusalem. That is going back to what I was saying before, that there are many, many different ways that heaven has been depicted. This was just one way that it was depicted. There are lots of other uh, documents, both uh, contemporary with and later than the book of Revelation, that talk about different sorts of heaven, that are both uh, a heaven <clears throat> beyond the planetary bodies, whether it's a single heaven or maybe a whole series of heavens beyond the planetary um, bodies. So 
this is one of the reasons why I say, if you think heaven's boring, which heaven are you talking about? You know, are you talking <laughs> right. about are you talking about the heavenly Jerusalem? Are you talking about the single heaven beyond the planetary bodies? Are you talking about the seven heavens um, and what's happening there? And there are lots of journeys that are, uh, are written um, by by early Christians describing their their journeys uh, to heaven, where where sometimes they can they can see the planetary bodies, or sometimes they can. They can just about see God. Maybe they won't be able to reach the seventh heaven, but they can see um, where it is. This has been really deep, cool stuff. Piotr, I'd like to talk for just a second, give everybody uh, some understanding of your book. Your book is called Where Airy Voices Lead. Where can people get that? It's available you know, through all the usual places. It's available, for instance, on Amazon. And do you have a website that people can go to to get more information about you and and any work you might have coming up? I have yes, I have a, a website which is essentially my name. So it's piotrbienkowski.co.uk. So everything I've written there is on a on a separate tab with a brief description of what it is, and and also the work that I'm uh, I'm doing and have done in the past. And we'll include that link in the show notes. So if you didn't quite catch that or you don't know how to spell that, which is not going to be surprising. You you Um, won't be the first. (laughs) Excellent stuff, as always. This has been really cool. Kelly, anything you want to say to wrap up? Well, so, you know, here's the thing. When you start studying spirituality and you start walking down these paths, getting a historical perspective really makes all the difference because as Pure referenced many times, there are multiple mythologies across multiple cultures that have similar themes. And when you can identify the themes, then you have archetypes and to work with in your spiritual practice and things that you can use to do esoteric practices within an established archetype. It's important to really understand the mythologies behind things and to understand how things have evolved through history, especially given the context that Piero has been so lovely in providing in this this episode of what historical context it was. If you don't understand the historical context in which things came into being, then you may not actually understand why they did what they did. And if you misconstrue it, then energetically, you're probably not going to be in alignment with what you're doing. So this is why studying history is important. And this is why I invited him onto the podcast is because uh, while it's a, a it's a diversion from what we normally talk about, it's so intertwined with what we will ultimately do. So uh, thank you so much for being on the call. Thank you for and- having me. It's been lovely to talk to you. I, I, I'm thrilled that you could be here. Thank you. And uh, I think that'll wrap it up for today. It sure will. All right, folks, that is all that we have for this week. But be sure to join us next time as Kelly adds another chapter into your guide to energy, magic, and the spirit world. I'm Joey C. here with Kelly Sparta and Piotr Biankowski. And you have been listening to Spirit Sherpa. So long, everyone. Bye. 
Spirit Sherpa is the sole property of Kelly Sparta Enterprises and is distributed under Creative Commons BY-NC-ND 4.0 license. For more information about this licensing, please go to creativecommons.org. Any requests for deviations to this licensing should be sent to K-E-L-L-E at K-E-L-L-E-S-P-A-R-T-A dot com. That's Kelly at KellySparta.com. To sign up or to get more information on the programs, offerings, and services referenced in this episode, please go to KellySparta.com. This episode of Spirit Sherpa has been produced by Honu Voice Productions. Are you waking up to the spiritual world and realizing that you have no idea what you're doing, but you feel like you kind of probably should, especially since you seem to be seeing things and feeling things and having things see you that maybe aren't so great and that you might want to actually control your experience of that. Well, I have great news for you because our Welcome to the Woo program does just that for you. It teaches you how to hold your energy field, manage your energy field, clear your energy field, protect your energy field, and learn how to protect your space. And you learn how to do basic divination and talk to your guides so that you feel like you actually have a clue and have a way to talk to the guides that will help you to figure everything else out. And it teaches you how to make sure that you feel mentally, emotionally, and energetically safe. That means that we also deal with things like fear and anxiety and worry and dread and self-doubt and inner and outer judgments. And we help you build a foundation of self-support and courage. All of these things together create a solid sense of safety in your own life. They will reduce your stress levels in half guaranteed. So visit the website at kellysparta.com and find out more about the Welcome to the Woo program. Your future awaits.